Well, hello, welcome to Two Cities Church. My name is Kyle, I'm one of the pastors here, whether you're watching online or in the VHQ venue or in this room, welcome. It's been a crazy 2020. This week is Thanksgiving. We're really excited to eat a lot of food with people we don't like. Uh, I'm just kidding, no. <laughs> we do that all the time, no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, I hope you guys safe travel. Some of you are staying in town, some of you are traveling here. And, and many of you are new. We have new people watching online. Uh, we have new people visiting each week. And let me just tell you a couple things about our church. I want you to know we, we're kind of an upfront church. I want you to know about our church. So I'm gonna tell you about it. Um, here's the first thing I want you to know, that the culture of our church is we have always been missions-minded, right? So we've always said, we came here, we said, in Winston, for the world. That was kind of our saying. And then we came here with a city vision, not a church vision. You know, why were we, why do we partner with a historically black church in the innovation quarter when we moved here? It was a commitment to the city. It was a commitment to be where there is, what is the city? Density and diversity, that's what a city is. We said, let's do that. We want to serve. We want to bless. We want to reach the city. Why do we take these warehouses, okay, and, and completely upfit and renovate them? We want to be near the city. We want to reach the city. We've always had a city vision. We've always had a national vision. Every year this church has existed, we've planted at least one church. Now, we, we have been a significant partner with the Summit Network, now the Summit Collaborative, in planting, I believe it's six or seven churches in the four and a half years that we've been here. We're really, really excited about that. Um, so yeah, it's okay to clap on any of this stuff, yes. And then we've loved global missions, okay? So the Goff family, who we've talked about before, we were their sending church. We were less than two years old. We were able to send them, be the sending and shepherding church for an entire family. Big deal, we were excited. And then we were able to partner with one of the five global cities in the world, Mumbai. I led the first vision trip there. So I say all of that just to say we've always loved missions. And then there's another thing about our church that I want you to know from day one. We have an incredibly generous church. I want you to know that only 8% of churches, their budget is up at all from last year because of, of course, because of COVID, right? Uh, we are one of those 8% of churches and it's because of your generosity. Our church, is, our church budget grew by 25% and we're going ahead of that. We are doing very, very well. And, and it's amazing because it's like, well, you hear those big numbers, but then you forget about the stories. Like the other day, I'm, I'm, uh, I go outside to, to say hello afterwards. And so I got out there uh, before one of the service ends and I see this guy, probably in his 50s, run down the steps. You don't see many men in their 50s run, okay? But I did, I did see this. Um, and he comes down the steps and, uh, and, and, and I'm like, is he leaving early? He, he goes, I'll be right back. He runs to his car and he comes back and, and I, didn't, I don't really know him, and, but he comes up to me and he basically says, he's got an envelope with him. He left in the car. He said, this is my first tithe check. He said, I, he said, I've never tithed before. He said, in fact, I was trying to Google it last night to see if I really need to do it. <laughs> he said, I was Googling it. I was trying to read all the arguments. He goes, I just decided I'm gonna give. He said, the moment that I gave and I wrote the check, I checked my credit score, it went up. I said, praise the Lord. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it's connected, but praise the Lord. Uh, and so we have a generous church. It's important to know we have a generous church. We have a missions-minded church. So we have a hold the rope offering. Uh, we're gonna put this behind us, a picture of this. The hold the rope offering is our end of the year offering that we do each year. Now, in the first year we did it in 2018, uh, we raised $50,000, we are really excited. Last year we were able to raise $198,000, okay? Uh, before I even tell you what we're gonna do with it, I'm just telling you this, none of it's coming to us. All of our needs are met, and if you know anything about being generous, there's nothing more exciting than giving other people who need it money and resources. It's incredibly exciting. And so what we're gonna do is everything I'm about to share with you, we're actually going to be able to give it to them. And here, here's the idea behind it. We call it the hold the rope offering because there was these two guys, they were best friends back in the 1700s, William Carey and Andrew Fuller. William Carey said, I'm gonna go to India. He said, but when I look at India, it's a big dark hole. He said, and, and Andrew Fuller famously said, if you'll go down into the hole, I'll hold the rope. And it was a commitment that basically, if you know the story of Andrew Fuller, you should read it. He, it's a fascinating story. He was a pastor and he basically raised a ton of money for his friend for his whole ministry. See, oftentimes what, what happens today is we say to the missionary, go buy your own rope. Go find it yourself while you also try to go overseas. It's too much. 
And so what we wanna do is we've got three partners. I'm gonna tell you, one's local, because we love our city, one's national, because we're committed to church planning, and one's global. The first one I wanna tell you about is David and Kathy Parsons, okay? David Parsons, uh, and by the way, these are all kind of, you know, people are watching or it's live stream, so, so you know, they might find out, but we haven't told them. This is the other thing. We're gonna just, they may find out early, but it's kind of like when you're pregnant. It's like, boy or girl, it's like, you find out with the ultrasound, it's a surprise. Find out the day it's born, it's a surprise, okay? Either way, they're gonna be surprised. Um, so, um, but anyway, so with, with Kathy and David Parsons, I want you to understand that David Parsons, when I met this man, I called him, this was about four years ago, and I said, let's get coffee at, let's get coffee at Cranky's Coffee, because that's what I did when I met with Christian leaders in the city, and they usually say yes. He goes, I don't wanna go to Cranky's Coffee. He says, I wanna show you what I do for a living. And he took me, and what I realized is that this guy spends all of his time in subsidized multifamily housing. All of it. I mean, let's just be real candid and honest here. He is an old white guy, okay? Who spends all of his time in subsidized housing among poor minorities, and they love him. Because he brings the gospel to them. We're gonna be telling you more about this in the weeks to come. He, he, first time, he just shows up with a basketball. He begins to teach them. And it's all about getting God's word and the gospel to particularly, I can't go into it right now, but to these four different apartment complexes. And let me tell you about a ministry like David Parsons. You, just because you probably know this, this ministry will never be self-sustaining. You can't have a ministry like that that's self-sustaining. He's, he's ministering to the poorest of the poorest of the poorest of the poor. He's trying to get people their first jobs. He's, trying to, he's dealing with generational and spiritual poverty at deep levels. So we're gonna get behind him and whatever you guys give, we're giving 25% of it to David. I mean, imagine that, guys. So last year, he would have gotten like, well, I went to public school, so you'd have to do the math, okay? <laughs> like 50 grand, okay? That's a lot of money. Well, how would you feel if someone called you and said, like, here's 50 grand. Do whatever you think the Lord wants to do with this money. So that's exciting. Second guy is, um, second family is Jeremy and Victoria Woods. Now, I want to tell you this. Incredibly exciting. These, these, um, this couple, very, very godly, that's their three-year-old daughter, Eleanor. Okay, they are currently, he's currently on staff at Biltmore Baptist in Nashville. He's a campus pastor. And he has felt the call to go to a hard city, to Myrtle Beach. Okay, some of you, your worst memories are from Myrtle Beach, okay? <laughs> I mentioned it, and you're like, are we having a time of confession? Not yet, no. But, but, um, but it, it, is, it is a growing area because of coastal Carolina down there. Um, it, it, is a, uh, it is an area where a lot of people go to escape. It's a different type of Asheville. It's a church planting graveyard. It's very, very hard, it's very transient, and they're moving their family there. And here's the thing, I, I heard this recently, that whenever you launch a rocket, um, they, a rocket, when it's getting off the ground, it uses one swimming pool of fuel every second. Think about that. So to get a rocket into the air and into orbit, one swimming pool per second is how much fuel it burns. Once you get it in orbit, it has the same gas mileage as a Suburban. So what, what's the principle there? It takes a lot to get something moving it in the air. So whatever you guys give, we're gonna give 25% of it to Jeremy and to Victoria. And we're going to help them go further faster. And we've got a really neat connection that I can't, with them that I can't get too many details into, but let me just tell you this. The first, their best friends, and the first couple that committed to going on this, to be a part of this church with the Summit Network are members of our church. And so we have a, we're gonna have a deep tie and partnership with them for years and years and years to come. And, and part of it, you know, we're not just a resource-sending church, we're a relationship-sending church. We don't just send money, we send members. And so, so some of you, you may say, I, I'm gonna give to the holder up and I'm gonna pray about going. I'm gonna, I, you know, I, I could, I need to redeem my, my past time in Myrtle Beach. So that we bet. Okay, uh, final, Coastway Church, pray for them. The final one, 
Uh, so Mumbai. Now, Mumbai is so massive, right? Like, it's like, I, I don't have enough time to talk about it all. I've been there. It's overwhelming, okay? It's like it hits you with all five of the senses as soon as you, you see it and go there. And you're overwhelmed by the poverty. You're overwhelmed by the beauty. You're overwhelmed by all of it. Um, I, I just want you to know we're going to give half of everything to Mumbai because here, here's, here's what they've got. They've got four areas. Number one, they are, they are investing in pastors, and I want you to know that. Uh, when I first went, went there, I got on a rickshaw which is a very scary golf cart that goes faster, okay, on three wheels. It's called a rickshaw. You can Google it later. And I got on a rickshaw, and I went down to this village, and, and I met this pastor. And he spoke very broken English, and he looked at me, and he said, teach me. And he gathered up all these people, and they put a whiteboard down, and, I, and that, was the, that prayer and preparation lasted about two minutes, and I had to teach for about an hour and a half. And so I just gave him my greatest hits, okay? Um, <laughs> But, but they're hungry to learn, they're hungry to grow. That's church advance. There's the slums, okay? The slums and red light district. You have to understand that you know who spearheads the slums and red light district ministry? Strong, spiritual, single women. You know, I mean, pray for them. They're, they're over there, they would like to be married. They wish they had, there was a godly man over there helping them. But they are so invested. They've learned the language, they've invested in the culture, they make these long-term commitments and they are there in Mumbai and we're gonna help them. There's the college and career. Just universities everywhere there, and we're trying to, like, like here, we're trying to reach the next generation. And then finally, the unreached people group. You've seen, you've, I can't say their names out loud, forgetting all the rules of this stuff. Anyway, we had a couple here that, uh, that did this, and, and again, I, I got to see all these, okay? I, I got in a car, and I did for one day what they do every day. We got in a car, and we drove three hours. And I remember about an hour and a half in, they go, that's the last Western toilet, and I go, yikes. And we drove another hour and a half and they said, pack your lunch because there's nowhere to eat out here. And we walked in the villages for hours and, it were, and I was the first white people anyone in those villages had ever seen. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to share the gospel so that people come to Christ, they baptize them and then they start house church movements all throughout villages in India. And so we've got to get behind these people. Here's our ask. Anybody, whether online, at VHQ, in person, uh, um, we're asking everybody we don't, have a, we don't have a numerical goal. It would be great to beat the goal of last year, 198,000. But we have a, a member goal or a participation goal, uh, which is we would love 100% of people to give something to this initiative above and beyond their normal tithes and offerings. We're gonna give 100% of it away. We're really excited about it. We're hoping to, uh, to, to, to tell them at the end of the year and to tell you guys and celebrate the number as we, um, as we start the new year together. So let's pray and then we'll dive into Exodus. Lord, we thank you for Dave... David and Kathy Parsons. We thank you for Jeremy and Victoria Woods. We thank you for the families that I can't even say, I'm not allowed to say their names out loud that are in India because of security issues. I mean, that's, that's how serious what these people do is and are. Lord, we pray for them. You'd strengthen their marriages, those who are married over there. Lord, we pray that you'd give them rest. Many of these missionaries in, in Mumbai are living there, dealing with lockdowns and COVID in India. So we feel like it's complex here. They're dealing with a whole new level of complexity as they try to do ministry there. Lord, let us just give generously and joyfully as Christians do because you're God who gives to us generously and joyfully. Amen. Well, you can type to, turn to Exodus 17. This, today concludes our Exodus study for now, okay? We'll, we'll pick it up at another time, but we're gonna kind of finish with, um, they've been saved, right? They've been rescued. And, and like uh, what you see in the, the book of Exodus is that what happens with the Israelites is a picture and parable of your life, of a Christian life. And what we see is it doesn't take God long to save them, right? He, he does that in a couple of days through the Passover and the Red Sea and all those events. But, uh, but it's a lot for God to sanctify them, to change them. And, and you can say it this way. It, he could really quickly get them out of Egypt, but it was gonna take 40 years for him to get Egypt out of them. 
We see that last week, if, you were, if you're new, we, we looked at a couple different stories of complaining. There's a lot of trials and internal battles. And then I want you to see what happens in verse eight today. In verse eight, we're, we pick up on what's next for Moses and the people following him. It says this, then Amalek, well, who's Amalek? Well, he's the grandson of Esau. Um, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now, here's what you need to know. They go from having internal battles to external battles, right? The internal battle was they were quarreling. They were murmuring with each other. They were murmuring against leadership. And, and a couple of things that's interesting. What's going to stop their complaining and murmuring is having a better battle to fight, right? You need a bigger, better battle to fight. Like if there's a lot of like, you know, your house is like a place of combat all the time and everybody's at each other's throat. It's like, we know what the problem in your house is. You have no bigger vision, no bigger mission. Because families who have a big mission say, look, God's great. We got to serve him. People don't know Jesus. Heaven and hell's real. We don't have time to argue over these little things all the time, right? It's a home with no mission that's inwardly fighting and complaining and bickering and revengeful. And you can feel it when you go in those houses and you don't want to be there and you don't want to be that type of person. Well, so finally, well, how do you do that? You have to have a bigger battle. Now, here's, here's the truth. When you become a Christian, you have new, new enemies. That's what happens, right? You know the enemies. They're, if you know your Bible at all, here's the enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, that's actually how you know you're a Christian. Like, how do you know you're a Christian? Like, you don't know that you're a Christian. I mean, how, how would you know? Because you said a prayer in third grade? Because you felt bad one night and got emotional? You're a Christian? I don't think so. That doesn't mean anything. How do you know you're a Christian? You're awake to the battles. You're like, okay, I have a flesh. I have a sinful nature. And I'm trying to push and press and crucify it. That's, how, that's what I'm trying to do. Right? You, how do you know that you're a, a true believer? You're fighting against the value system of the world. That's what it means when it says do not love the world. It doesn't mean don't love the people. It means don't love the value system of the world. And you feel that conflict with culture that you believe and you behave differently and it presses on you and you don't feel like this is your home. That's a sign that you're in the battle. Or how about the idea that you have an intelligent evil enemy? His name is the devil, right? I mean, that's what's so scary about the devil. I mean, God's bigger, we're not scared ultimately. But it's like, it's no joke, right? It's no joke to have somebody who's evil and smart and against you. Some of you had that in middle school, right? You didn't like that. Okay, now imagine the devil. So what they do is they have to fight these battles. I want you to see what happens. Look at verse nine. So Moses said to Joshua, what you're gonna see here is interdependence, not dependence. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm, that's, that's unhealthy. I'm codependent. I, I completely need you. Help, help, help. We're gonna see healthy interdependence. Everybody has their role. Everybody has their place. So Moses says, Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now you hear that again, the staff of God, the rod of God. It represents the power and judgment of God. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. And then look at these, these people. While Moses, we've heard of him, Aaron, we've heard of him, and her. Now, who is her? Well, her is a him. It's actually a guy, okay? See if you're paying attention here. Uh, her is a him. And her uh, went up to the top of the hill. Verse 11, whenever Moses held up his hand, so probably a picture of prayer, probably a picture of desperation, that's what we think. Prayer is not explicitly mentioned, but it seems to be that's what it's talking about. Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. So you kind of see there, there's dependence. Joshua has to fight the war. He has to gather his men. Moses has to do his part, pray and depend on the Lord. Okay, verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and they put it under him. Okay, so they're starting to help him. And he sat on it. Now look at this. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands. This is the first CrossFit workout in the Bible. It's right here, okay? Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> It's all right to laugh and have a good time. Okay. One on one side and the other, one on the other side. You kind of see this idea of, the whole idea, you guys get it, is dependence. And we need each other and we need help. And what ends up happening, let's go back to verse 12. Um, 
So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now here's what's interesting. It says he overwhelmed them with the sword. What we find out, if, if you know anything about biblical history, is they had to fight the um, Amalekites for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. The Amalekites actually aren't fully destroyed until the time of Hezekiah. What does this mean? There are certain battles that you're going to fight that you're going to fight the rest of your life. And it's just a good thing to know. It's like, and hopefully you would, the frequency of the battle would be less. Hopefully the duration of the battle would be less. Hopefully the intensity of the battle would be less, right? That's how you see if you're growing an area. The frequency, the duration, the intensity is less. But the truth is some of you are gonna always fight that battle of laziness or the battle of, you know, pouring too many drinks from the bottle or, or the battle of clicking the mouse and looking at something you shouldn't look at. You, you, or, or the battle of doubt. I mean, you're gonna face these battles and you have to keep fighting them, right? I mean, some of you said, I'm gonna fight them in 2021. I'm giving up fighting till now. Like, they got too, you know, got too hard in COVID. Let me just encourage you to keep fighting them. Because here's what happens later in the story. They, uh, Moses and actually Caleb and, and Joshua, they basically say, guys, let's go into the promised land God's given us. And they see the Canaanites and the Amalekites and they go, I don't wanna fight them. So what does it mean when God's calling you to fight a battle and you don't fight it? We know what this means. It means 40 years of wandering in the wilderness for you. And some people go, why is my marriage in the exact same place? Why is my battle with sin in the same place? Why are my finances in the same place? Why is my relationship with God in the same place? Why is my time with, my, why are all my friendships? We know, we actually know the answer to that. If you, one of the answers to that is you're not fighting the fight that God's called you to fight. You're wandering in the wilderness. So, so here they are, they're wandering in the wilderness. Look at verse 14. Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, write this, he's always wanting to remember things, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua and I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Verse 15, and Moses built an altar and called it the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So he says, this is, last week we saw the Lord is my healer. This week it's the Lord is my banner. What's a banner? You see him at weddings, you see him at birthdays. It's when you're celebrating, it's when you're happy, it's when you're joyful. It's when you're publicly celebrating something. So they're saying, hey, we're gonna publicly celebrate the Lord. Look at chapter 18, verse one. From here, Moses gets reunited with his family. Here's what happens. Jethro, and particularly the men, but women too, you can be a Jethro, okay, as we said before. But, um, but I want you to pay attention here because with Jethro, there's nothing negative said about him. He's going to be a great grandfather. He's gonna be a great father-in-law. He's gonna be a great dad. He's gonna be a great and generous host to others. And God is going to use him greatly to redirect the life and ministry of Moses. Here's what it says. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home. Along with her two sons, the name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, Eliezer for he said, the, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Verse five, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he had encamped at the mountain of God. And when he had sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. Part of what we see here is, it's just helpful as you read books of the Bible like this and you study men. What's happening here is we're not gonna get into the celebrity culture that Moses is somebody super special, right? I mean, he is special. He has this unique role and responsibility. Part of what we're introduced to, it's kind of a, kind of a break in the whole story. It's like Moses is a normal person and that's helpful to know. It's actually, gonna, part of the reason Moses is gonna need advice is because he's got a family. He's got two young boys. Probably don't know their age exactly. He's got a wife. He, he, and what we see here is he's reunited with his family and, and Jethro is an incredible example of what a godly father 
does, a godly father-in-law does. This is verse seven. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and they went into the tent. This is interesting. You see two men who have appropriate affection for each other, right? Again, I know we're all COVID, social distancing and elbowing and all that kind of stuff. But, but, you, you, but what you see is in, in, in the normal rhythms of life, you see what, what does a mature man know how to do? And a mature woman. They know how to show the appropriate amount of affection and they know how to have a conversation. Do you see that? They went into the tent and they talked, right? I mean, how many, how many homes would be better if men knew how to do this? Right? By the way, when you hug and kiss your kids, if they say stop it, that means keep doing it. That's what that means, okay? <laughs> they love it. I mean, seriously, you, your kids need affection, they need love, and they need conversation, they need questions. So he, he begins to ask him questions. Look, verse eight, then Moses told his father-in-law all, and that's how you know you trust somebody, when you tell them everything, right? Uh, and Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships. So you know that you can trust someone when you can tell them good things and bad things that had come upon them and that the Lord had delivered them. Verse nine, and Jethro rejoiced. And, and again, that's a, that's a way that you know that you really love somebody and yet you really care for somebody is that you can rejoice when they're rejoicing. You know, some of you, that's not the case. Some of you, it's like, we can't ever tell you if we got the inheritance, you couldn't handle it. You know, if we, if we told you that our kids got a scholarship, you'd be really upset. If we told you about the vacation we were on, you wouldn't like it. And there's some of you, there's a part of you, there's a dark part of you that you want certain people's lives to not go too well because you've been keeping score. That's not, what, that's not what we do. That's not what the church does. That's not what godly community does. Godly community, Paul says this in Romans, we want to rejoice with those who rejoice and we want to weep with those who weep. And by the way, it's always harder to rejoice with those who rejoice, right? Because if you're, if you're doing bad, what I do is like, well, okay, I can come down to your level. I can, I can weep with you. That's easy. What's harder is actually to, life's not going very well for me. I'm going to come up and I'm going to rejoice with you. And so what we see here is Jethro rejoices. Look at verse Nine, and Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 10, Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who's delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. Verse 12, and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God and Aaron came with all the elders, and we estimate that's about 70, of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So I, I, this is interesting. What, what Jethro is doing, and this is going to set up the rest of the story, because in a few minutes, um, Jethro is going to say some very hard things for Moses to hear. He's going to call him out on some things. He's going to say, you're, you're too, putting too much on your plate. Basically, I can see it with your family. I can see it with your kids. But how is he able to do that? A couple things. One, he's invested in the life of his son-in-law, so he can speak to it. Secondly, he's an incredibly generous guy, right? It's like, well, how, if you want to have an influence on somebody, what do you need to do? Relational and, ge and, and generous. And, and, and it, what what, what uh, Jethro is doing is he's earning the right to be heard. I mean, think about this. He's going to have everybody over and feed them. That's a very generous act. He's going to spend time listening and hearing the story of Moses. That's, that's, he's earning the right to be heard, right? Relationships are a lot like bank accounts. You need to make lots of deposits so that you can make withdrawals. I've heard it said before that it takes the net of relationship to hold the weight of truth. And so what, what you see here is, I want you to see what happens next here. Verse 13, here's what it says. The next day, Moses sat. And, that, and that's, by the way, a, 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 a picture of authority. And today we stand if we have authority. Um, back then they sat when they had authority. And the, the next day, Moses sat to judge the people 
And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. So he's going to observe this. His, his uh, father-in-law is going to see this. Here's what's happening. Moses is doing the counseling and care ministry of the church. That's what he's doing. You can read about it. But basically, people were coming to him. Hey, I've got anxiety. Hey, I'm struggling with this. Hey, my teenager's disobeying. Hey, our marriage is in conflict. And there's a lot of people. And so that's all he's doing. He's just constantly meeting with people and talking to them. And we're going to see in a moment that he's getting completely overwhelmed with it, right? And this is helpful to know. In the church... You know, and you're here for some reason or watching online for some reason, so you might be interested in this. In the church, there are two main ministries. There's the teaching ministry and there's the counseling care ministry. The teaching ministry starts with the word of God and goes to people. Okay, so that's what we're doing right now. It's like we just take the word and it's like, well, we'll be in Exodus for who knows how long and whatever comes up, we'll talk about. And it hopefully will address a bunch of people's problems wherever they are, but we're starting with the word going to the people and their problems. The counseling and care ministry is the exact opposite but as necessary, needed, and helpful. It happens throughout the week. It happens in relationships. It happens in community. It happens in DNA groups. And it's when people take their problems to other Christians and ask for help from the word of God. But it's very, very difficult. It's like someone comes to you and says, well, you know, my father is an alcoholic. Okay. You know, and our marriage is actually stressed out because of it. Okay. And it's, I think it might be affecting our teenage daughter. I can't tell if she's on drugs or if she's just depressed. Okay, you know what I'm saying? Like, you're like, what would you do with that? It's like, it's very hard. And what you're trying to do, and this is why it's overwhelming, right? This is why, and, and there's no, everybody's got problems. And the more you talk to them, <laughs> the more problems they have. And, and, and they start to share those problems with you. And it's, it's a good thing, and we need to. We need to bear each other's burdens. But what's happened with Moses, he's taking all of their problems on himself. And he's trying to give the word of God, and he's trying to encourage, encourage and he's trying to counsel. And I want you to see what happens. Verse 14. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people. He said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? So Jethro shows up, and, and I'll use the word coach or mentor interchangeably. He basically shows up as a coach. And this is so important. What we wanna do is we wanna build a church where everybody in the church can do this because everybody can be a coach or mentor. Everybody needs to be coached and mentored. Everybody can be a coach or mentor. What is a coach or mentor? It's somebody who personally and practically helps you with your problems from scripture. That's what a mentor does. Harvard Business Review came out with this big study, decades-long study, uh, about in 2015 or 2018, basically said, guess who makes the most money? People who have mentors. Guess who has the most freedom in their schedule? People who have mentors. Guess who's the most physically healthy? People who have mentors. It's like, of course. Let somebody else pay your dumb tax, right? Life is way too short and way too painful to learn everything by experience. So what a mentor does is come in and say, hey, I've seen this before. I've got a different view. I've got a different perspective. For Jethro, he's like, I've seen your family, right? You've got two young boys. You've hardly seen them. You've been busy with Pharaoh. Like your, your wife, she's with me. I'm trying to take care of her. You're not, you're, we don't know this, some of this is conjecture, but it seems like maybe he's leaving some things at home, right? Which by the way, is one of the ways you know, like how do you know that you're not doing well and you're overwhelmed? Usually your home life and your health, right? Your home life, and it's normally your wife. Like if the, if the husband is the thermostat, the wife is the thermometer. <laughs> he says it's hot in here. She says, very cold, very cold, not, 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 not hot. You know, because she actually is the one who tells you what the temperature is. And so what happens here is, is he has this coach who comes in his life, and his coach does two things. You can see it right in the text. Why don't you see this? It says this, verse 14. When Moses' father-in-law saw, so this is the idea, this is the biblical idea of paying attention, of being awake, right? It's interesting because there's a word in our culture, you know, people feel differently about it. I, you know, won't give you my opinion on all this, but, but basically, you know, the word woke, right? It's a big word. You know what woke means? I mean, it means a lot of different things, okay? But what the main idea of woke is, is, oh, you know, if, you, if somebody says, I'm woke, it means there's something I didn't know that now I know. I was like sleeping and I, and I woke up and now I see things correctly, whether you agree with where they fall in those things. What's interesting is that's actually a biblical idea in and of itself, that you could not, that you could, because 
the truth is there's a lot of things that you don't want to see. And why would you, right? Because if you saw them, then you'd be responsible for them. And, you know, some of you don't even want to know who your teenage daughter's hanging out with. It'd be too painful. Because then you might have to have a conversation or you might have to say something or who knows what she's looking at on the internet and, or, he, or he's looking at on the internet if you've got a teenage boy or whatever. You know, it's like, there's a lot of things. It's like, we don't even really want to know if we want to see them because if we see them, then we're responsible to say something about it. Then we may feel guilty. Then we may feel responsible that we actually let it go this far. And didn't, then you feel bad that you didn't see it for so, I mean, believe me, all this stuff is very deep. But there is nothing more powerful than being able to see and being able to be observant. And then the second thing he does is he speaks. And look, he speaks by asking questions. Look what he says, two questions. What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you till morning, morning and evening? Basically, you know, anybody, everybody wants to tell you something, right? A coach wants to ask you something. That's the difference. A coach wants to come into your life and say, let me ask you some questions. And you know, there tends to be three categories that would be helpful to ask people questions in. Personal, spiritual, missional. Those are Christian helpful categories. Personal is just, you may, you, we need to get better at asking people questions, right? We're, we're just, we tend to be self-focused. We tend to, we tend, maybe some of us are more introverted. We tend to not, not all of us have good social skills. We don't know how to ask people questions. A, a good question is just sometimes ask is, one of my favorite questions is help me understand why and whatever it is that I'm asking them about. Help me understand why you're late to community group every week. Because it's actually a hopeful question. It's like, I, I, I want to understand. I think there's a reason and I want you to tell me and I want to listen and I want to learn. It's a very like winsome, humble way to say it. We, you, here's, some, here's some helpful questions to ask people. Hey, what are you excited and passionate about? Man, you would be amazed at what people will tell you. What's important to you? What are the current pains and pressure points uh, in your life right now? And again, again, I'm assuming you can't ask a random stranger that, okay? We're, we're, there's the assumption of, of relationship here, but those questions are powerful. So we need to get better at asking spiritual questions. A lot of us, we, we talk normally and then we have our, Spiritual conversation voice. It's like, hey, how's it going, man? Did you read your Bible? You know, and it's like, we, we got, it's like, who is that? It's like a, it, it actually comes from the sacred secular divide. We, we, th- we treat things differently. It's like, you want to ask questions about people's spiritual life, but you want to be very hopeful. Like, I like to ask people, hey, tell me in the last few weeks, have you read anything good in scripture? It gives people a big window. It's not, because listen, a coach is trying to build people up, not beat them up. We're trying to help people, not hurt people. We, I don't want perfection, we just want progress. So the hope is not to catch you. Oh, you didn't read? You, you've not been praying? It's like, I don't want, no, that, that's not, no, you're not gonna have a relationship with a person like that. It's gotta be incredibly helpful. Another, another way to ask somebody something is, so um, someone, you know, how do you talk about sin struggles? You assume the best, but you ask a question, which is, man, I know that sexual temptation is, is really strong in our society today. What are some of the strategies that you use to fight that? Do you feel how hopeful that is? Not when was the last time you looked at something you shouldn't? It's like, well, I don't want to talk to you anymore. You feel like you're the police trying to catch me or something. No, no, no I, I want to be hopeful and helpful. And then missionally, we just want to ask people questions like, man, you know, is there anyone in your life who's far from God and close to you? If there's not, then that's a whole other conversation. But if there's one, okay, what are you doing to try to help them know God? That, that, those are the kind of hopeful questions. Listen, there's nothing more powerful than being able to see and speak. For example, why do very, 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 very wealthy businessmen and women, why do they leave their jobs to go into consulting? Because there's even more money in it. Why is consulting so highly paid? If you're good, not if you just go into consulting because you think you're going into consulting. What, what, like if you are a good consultant, why are you highly paid? Because usually in one small area of one small industry, you actually know how to see and say things. So people will fly you in from California, lots of money, spend a day with us. I need you to do two things, see and say. That's it. 
And you would not believe what people will pay for that kind of stuff. It's, and so what we want to do is we want to be a, the type of church where, man, that's, that's happening. That, the church is not transformed just when it has great Sundays. We thank God for great Sundays. The church is transformed when at every level of analysis, in every home, people are committed to seeing and saying things. And so there's Jethro. He sees things, he sees things, he says things, and then he's got a great motive. But first we got to see how he responds, how Moses responds. Moses said to his father-in-law, so remember his father-in-law said, why are you doing all this? Like, why are you working these 12-hour nursing shifts? You're just, it's all day, you're just, for 12, 14 hours, you're, you're exhausting yourself from morning till evening. Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me. So we can't tell, but it seems like he may have a little bit of a, uh, some pride, which is, there's a lot of reasons people get overwhelmed. One of the reasons people get overwhelmed is they think they're the only ones who can do it, right? A good rule is if someone can do it 70% that you can do it, you need to delegate it, right? And you don't just delegate tasks, you delegate responsibility. Delegating tasks, nobody wants to be delegated tasks. They want to be delegated responsibility. And that's how you actually develop people. So anyway, it says, and Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a, a dispute, they come to me. And I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statues and the statues of God and his laws. So we don't know for sure, but it seems like the reasons he's doing that is potentially, potentially some bride, we don't know for sure. We don't also know is, did he try to get some people when they weren't helpful, or is, is do what a lot of men do? Are people abdicating and abandoning their responsibility? Someone else will take care of my kids. Someone else will lead this group. I mean, that, that we live in a culture where more and more men are, are abandoning and abdicating their authority. And so other men, and actually a lot more women, are having to pick it up. So here's what he says. You can see the encouraging coach in, in Jethro. He says, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. But he can say that because he has a relationship. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. See, he has his best in mind. He doesn't want to beat him up. He wants to build him up. For the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. See, what he's concerned about is, is the heaviness of this on Moses. And, and we'll even see later in its effect on the people. But when you, when you think about your life, you want to think about two things. How much am I doing and how much does it weigh? Right? Because people can do things. There are certain people who can do like, man, I'm only working 40 hours a week. I mean, that's what normal people work. Yeah, yeah. But let's think about your 40 hours, right? Because sometimes it's the weight that you're carrying, the responsibility that you're carrying, the relationships that you're dealing with that you could be working 30 hours a week and you could be completely overwhelmed because of the amount of load of weight you're carrying, not just the amount of work you're doing. And so he says, I want you to, he says, I, this burden is too heavy for you. What, he want, what he's trying to avoid is two things that, that we see all the time. We see this in families. We see this in marriages. We see this certainly at the church level in business is people who either burn out or blow up, right? You know that. You know who that is. Some of you, that's been you, right? Burning out is when you, you haven't had healthy rest. You haven't had healthy rhythms. You don't know how to delegate. Who knows? all? You have misplaced priorities. You're a people pleaser, so you don't know how to say the word no, right? And some of you, that's actually, I didn't say this in the first service, but I feel that I need to say this right now. Some of you need to learn how to say no. I mean, because you, you love people. And here's what no means. Here's what, you can't say no unless you mean this. There's nothing you can do to make me do that. And you need to be the kind of person. It's like, you, don't, you, you have to be able to say no to people. And that, that assumes I have priorities. I have things that I'm excited about. I have things that I'm passionate about. I have gifts. I have multiple levels of responsibility. So I, I have to learn how to say the word no. It's my second favorite word. Yes is my favorite word. No is my second favorite word. You have to learn how to say it. Well, anyway, so because so, you see people burn out. And burning out's not great, right? Because here's what happens when you burn out. Uh, and I knew people, I knew a guy, he, 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 he was so stressed out, his eyes started twitching. Everybody thought he was flirting with him, 
uh, or he was flirting with her, whatever. And it's like, you know, I knew a guy that he, he felt so, like his church was growing so much, he said, I'm gonna preach six services a Sunday in person, live. He blew out his adrenal glands twice. That's not something that you recover from like in a week or a month or maybe a year. And people just, they push themselves to these limits and burning out. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's the spouse that gets burnt out. You know, because she or he is feeling all the burden of doing everything because you're doing so much at the church or at the office or at the, and then they feel it. And being burnt out is, it's not a golden badge or something because here's what happens when you're burnt out. When you're burnt out, you become a burden. So it's not helpful. It's like, great, you know, when we're gonna be gracious to anyone who burns out, it's like, okay, here's what happens when you burn out. Then you become a burden to other people who they may burn, burn out trying to take care of you. This is the whole everyone needs to carry their whole, whole load thing that, that the Apostle Paul talks about in Galatians chapter six. But what happens is people burn out and then they never tell you that they're burnt out, right? I mean, like, what happens when a pastor burns out? Well, we know he gets his real estate license and sells life insurance. I mean, that's what, I mean, that's exactly what happens. Because he doesn't want to say I'm burned out and you guys wore me out and this was, you know, whatever. So, you know, people want to be humble about it. They don't want to make a big deal. So you don't often even know that people burn out. Now, what's blowing up? Blowing up's a little different. Blowing up is when, you know, you, you, you know beware of yourself. Watch yourself. This is the whole watch yourself, right? Watch, watch the escapes that you have, right? Because God's okay with us, like healthy escapes in the Lord. Lord, I love going for a run. I love going up, you know, and working out in the morning and I love whatever. You can, you can have healthy we'll call them escapes. But what happens in blowing up is people find an unhealthy escape. Um, you know, I, you know I'm, always, I'm always concerned about the person who's in their 40s and 50s and picking up a bunch of new hobbies that they're super passionate about. I'm like, wh- why? What is this about? I, I saw this with somebody one time. They were picking up all these hobbies and I'm like, it came out a couple years later, oh, you and your stepdaughter don't get along. That's what that was about. That's what that was about. I mean, I'm 100% sure. That's exactly what that was about. And you needed to get out of the house as much as possible. And so you created this massive hobby where you traveled around that, you know, I won't get into it. Not, not someone in our church. But, but it's just like, so what happens, and a lot of times is, you know, somebody's like, well, my escape's gonna be a glass of wine. Then my escape's three glasses of wine. Then my escape's two bottles. You know how this works. You know, my escape is Netflix, and then it's racy shows, and then it's pornography, and then it's, and that's what happens. And then you, you know, sometimes people who are about to blow up, they just leave ministry anyway, or leave their responsibilities because they love sin too much and they feel like I can't keep telling people something that I'm doing the opposite of, then sometimes they, get, they, get, they don't confess and they get caught and it blows up and that's terrible too. And so he's like, hey guys, we have to, he, he's concerned for the well-being of Moses that he doesn't burn out, that he doesn't blow up. Look at verse 18, 19. So he gives them some practical advice, right? This is what you need, right? All of you need biblical, me too. We all need biblically rooted practical advice that touches our lives, Don't ever think that systems and structures and strategies are not spiritual. They are super spiritual. Because what we see is actually right here, this is a key moment that's going to push forward the mission of the church. The the same thing happens in Acts chapter six. In Acts chapter six, the church is growing like crazy. Then everybody starts fighting. Then they have to call the first leadership meeting in Acts chapter six. And they basically have to say, all right, here's, here's whose roles are whose. They have to restructure the whole church. And then it says at the very end of that, the church explodes. Because the church has to get organized horizontally so that it can have a huge effect vertically. So here's what happens, verse 19. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, but I'm a good father-in-law. I love you. You know I do. And God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, 
and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. So basically what he says is, I mean, you can read it there. I mean, that's, that's the first small group ministry in the church right there. <laughs> he basically said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find good men. And by extension, we'd say good men and women. And he says, here's what I want you to look for. I want you to look for four things. For, look for their communion with Christ. You see that? He says, they got to fear God. You, you know, why, why do you, you hear these terrible stories about like, you know, deacon committees at churches that, that go sideways. And it's like, well, why do they go sideways? It's like, because they hired the businessmen, not the godly men to be on the deacon board. That's why that happens. We, we know that. And, and then the second thing is godly character, right? They're like, hey, don't take a bribe. And, you know, basically they're like, hey, look, don't be nice to someone because they have a lake house. Don't be nice to someone else because they have a beach house. If you're going to lead people, you can't, be, you, know, you can't be concerned about how much money they have or what they could do for you or you know, how powerful they are in the city. Forget all that stuff. Um, you, just say, you just lead people. You love people, you lead people. So he says, don't take a bribe. That's the character stuff. Then he says competency. You have to have a basic skill set. You probably have to have relational skills. You have to be able to lead people. And then he says capacity, right? They're all C's. I know it's easy to remember. But, um, but the, the, the final C is, is capacity where he says, hey, look, some people have a bread plate. Some people have a dinner plate. Some people have a banquet plate, right? Your, your capacity is how much people, pressure, and pain can you endure? And some people can't. Right? And the way you, you test that is you just put, as, especially if you're a young man, you put as much on you as possible until then you'll get stronger. And then you put more on you. And then you put more on you. And then you figure out this is, this is my capacity. Well, anyway, so he, he gets these people and he says hey, they're going to have different capacities. Well, let me just encourage you guys. This really is, and I kind of said it earlier, this is our heart for community groups. If you ever wonder, like, you know, is community groups a biblical idea? Absolutely. It is the way that we care for. I mean, we, we have, we're trying to. We have no idea how many people are watching. And, and per, I mean, it's the COVID craziness of it all, right? People are in the lobby, people in the VHQ, people are here, multiple services, people online, people travel. I mean, who knows? We're, we're trying. We're trying to do quality ministry to every one of you that wants quality ministry done to them. We're trying to lead, feed, know, and protect. There is no way that, I, I mean, I try to. I want to be out there. I want to have conversation. There is no way that me or any one other person or any, any 10 people could know everybody in this church. So what we have is we have a community group structure. We have over 60 community groups right now. So when you're a community group, you can actually know people. Guess what? The average community group is something like 10 to 20 people. It's the perfect kind of first level of getting to know each other. Now, this is interesting, and I thank God for this. Since September, that's not that long ago. We're in November, so September, October, now it's November. Uh, when we get to this next weekend, we will have over 200 new people, 200 new people that have gone through our weekend or just in the last three weekenders. So I'm just trying to bring this down so we understand, because I want you to understand this if you're going to be part of our church family. When 200 people join your church in three months, we say thank, and they're all new. Never met any of them. Thank God, we're glad they're here. Some of them are in this room right now. It's like, when that happens, it's like, guess how many community groups you need for 200 people? At least 15. At least 15. And that's assuming that we're not gonna have another big weekend or in January, which we probably will, and another one in February. And that's not assuming that there was a bunch of you that never got connected at first and are trying to get connected to a community group. So part of this is give us, you know, no one's giving us a hard time. Just give us grace, we're trying to figure all this out. But, but part of what we're trying to do here is say, you know, one, one of the things is, are there some of you that could lead a community group that aren't, that are members of our church, that have been through our weekend, that say, I could lead a community group. You know, I was at, at, a, at, a, at a person's house in our church on Saturday night and outside, social distance, bonfire, all kind of thing. But we're, we're sitting out there and I'm talking to him and I realize, and I asked him, you know, because our church is getting big. I said, and I know this guy. I said, are you a community group leader? He said, no. I said, why not? He, he said, I don't know. I said, let's talk about it. It made no sense. It's like, Great guy, godly guy, great family, heart, heart for God. It's like, you know, capacity, competency, communion with Christ. It's like, and I'm like, are there a couple dozen people like that in our church right now? It's like, you know, what we say, and Caleb's giving me a, uh, Caleb's our, our, among other things, our community groups pastor. You guys can email him at caleb at twocitieschurch.net. 
And if you have any interest in being a community group leader, we'd love to talk to you. If you, again, if you're a part of our church, because we need to multiply groups. It's how we're gonna care for everyone in this church. The, the second thing we're doing that we're really excited about is that we have a residency that we started this year. It was our way to say, how do we, as a church, how do we invest in the next generation of ministers, missionaries, and just in general church staff, people who are gonna be in full-time vocational ministry? It's for men and women. We have two full-time residents right now that are in our church. Uh, I mentioned it one time on a Sunday, briefly. We had 15 more people apply. I'm mentioning it now. Again, I don't know what will happen, but what we're saying is, here, here, here's, our, here's our hope. Our hope is to invest in the next generation so that wouldn't it be incredible? It's like, you know, wouldn't it be incredible if, if we start, you just started knowing all the residents. We had 20 residents in our church. They all raised their support. They're here for two years before they go somewhere else. The vision is to strengthen the whole church. I would love to see our residents be here. I'd love to have the premier residency in the triad for anyone who wants to get into full-time ministry. And then we'll send them all over the world. And we'll strengthen the church by the grace of God. It, it's our way to say that's what we want to do. So, so we're trying to think through different ways that we can begin to care for everybody. We think some of our future church planters will be first our residents. So he, he says all this, and then I want you to see what happens. Verse 22, let them judge the peoples at all times. So that's, they need to counsel and care for them. Every great matter they'll bring to you, but any smaller matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you. And they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So the whole idea is if you lift up leaders, you'll lighten the load and everybody will flourish. Every person will flourish. And then he says this, verse 24, so Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and they judged the people at all times. But Moses didn't go retire. It says, any hard case they brought to Moses. But any small matter they decided among themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went away to his own country. See, this is an interesting concept as we talk about leadership because what, what the Bible teaches consistently, unanimously, repeatedly is single headship, plural leadership, right? So Moses is still the head. <laughs> Moses is still ultimately in charge, Right? It's kind of like in the home, the husband is the head, but the wife and the husband together, so that's single headship, but the wife and the husband together, plural leadership in the home, right? It's like every, every football team has multiple coaches and one head coach, right? At our church, we have multiple pastors and one lead pastor, right? It's the whole idea. Think about it. It's like Peter is the first among equals, right? Every time you find Peter's name, the list of disciples, guess whose name first? Peter. Uh, anytime somebody has to stand up and speak, anytime, in the book of Acts or anywhere else, what happens? Peter speaks, right? And so, so this whole idea of there's singular headship, but there's plural leadership. Now, I want you to see what happens. When all of this gets organized and put together, turn to chapter 19, verses five and six as we close. It's after the church gets organized that it, that it gets back on its mission. Here's what it says. Now, therefore, this is God's final word, really, as they head to get the 10 commandments in chapter 20. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. You're valuable to God because you were made in God's image and Christ died for you. Treasured possession will be the most valuable thing a, a king has. Among all the peoples, for, the earth, for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Now, what does a priest do? Help connect God to man. That's what the priest does. It's like you, you're looking for people who are far from God and close to you. Why? So you can help connect God to man. That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests. And you're a holy nation. You're an attractive alternative. You're distinct and you're different. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So he gives them this beautiful picture as they go out to fight more battles and to bear each other's burdens. And you know, as we think back on this, this, this text, this idea, what's interesting is if you look back to the first battle, while Moses is stretching out his hands, who else had to stretch out his hands so that we would prevail and be forgiven? Jesus Christ stretched out his hands. Who actually needed to fight the battle for us? Not Joshua, but Jesus. What's interesting is in Jesus, though, it's interesting, unlike Moses, Jesus could not give his burdens to anybody else. There were certain things that as the sinless son of God, only he could do, he could not delegate somebody else. Nobody else was gonna be able to live that perfect life, only him. Nobody else was going to take the sins of the world onto himself. So when you can share your sins and struggles with me, that's what, and with each other, that's what the counseling ministry and the care ministry of the church is, but nobody can take them on themselves, die on the cross and pay for them except for Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus Christ did in his life and his death and his resurrection. And I just wanna give us a moment, if you'll bow with me, close your eyes. I'd love, I'd love us to respond a couple different ways as we think about this message in this text. Because we said a lot of things today. The first thing is, what battle do you need to re-engage in your life? You know, as we, as we head home, as you head to the holidays, as we head into a new year, what battle have you stopped fighting or you weren't fight, you're not fighting it as fiercely as you were? It's, it's probably one of the same five or 10 categories, right? It's the battle against your doubt. It's the battle against some addiction in your life. It's the battle against bitterness and unforgiveness. Just recommit to that battle before the Lord and say, Lord, would you fight for me? You're the God who fights for me. Maybe you need to find somebody else to help you. For others of you, the, the question might be, who do you need to start listening to? So for some of you, it's your parents. Your parents are just great Jethro's and Jethro's. And, uh, but, but in some of you, I feel compelled to say that some of you parents, you need to work a lot more on relationship, a lot less on rules. Jethro has a lot of relationship and just a little bit of rules. <laughs> lots of relationship, lots of investment, lots of prayer, lots of generosity, lots of conversation, lots of relationship affection, and then a word, a word of care and correction because there's a commitment to the best. Lord, whether we need to listen to a Jethro or whether we need to be a better Jethro, help us, Lord. Lord, and then who do we need to raise up? Lord, I pray for our community group leaders, Lord. Part of the, part of the challenge is who can they raise up? Who can they identify? Sometimes people don't see themselves as leaders and they are. Sometimes people don't see that they're needed and they are. Lord, give our community group the ability to see something and say something. Give us all that ability. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.